In anticipation of Super Bowl 50 and the NFL playoffs, BetMGM has a brand new offer for the listeners of the Just Baseball Show. Place your first BetMGM Sportsbook wager through BetMGM Sportsbook app of at least $5. You will receive $158 instantly in additional winnings regardless of your wager's outcome. So how do you get this offer? Well, first, you're going to download the BetMGM Sports app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Sign up and deposit at least $5 in to your newly created account. Place a wager in the amount of at least $5 at standard odds price. Once you have placed a bet, you will receive $158 in bonus bets regardless of the outcome of your wager. Disclaimer, betmgm.com for terms and conditions must be 21 plus to wager. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., New York, or Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, New Jersey, Nevada, Nevada, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL and get $158 when you bet at least $5 on your first wager. Do it on BetMGM. Fantasy Baseball Preview, the Orioles are selling, and the top five DHs in Major League Baseball for 2024. Welcome to a banger of an episode, February 2nd. It is Friday here on the Just Baseball Show. You got Arm Layton, I'm Peter Apple, and it's all brought to you by BetMGM, the king of sportsbooks. Remember to use code JustBaseball to get that $158 in bonus bets, ladies and gentlemen. What are we doing? Why are we just sitting here and not putting $5 down? using Kojus Baseball, and then you get $158 for Super Bowl 58. You are leaving free money on the table. If you do not take advantage of this offer, you can find it in the episode description. Remember, gambling problem? Call or text 1-800-GAMBLER. Must be 21 or older, and terms and conditions apply. Aram, we have too much to talk about to worry about how our lives are outside of the podcast. Let's get straight into the Orioles are selling... Amazing, yes, but it's not quite happening yet. And the Angelos family hasn't even come out publicly and say they are actually selling. But we have sources, we have reports that finally the Baltimore Orioles might spend some money. Yeah, well, it's funny that like you hear the Orioles are selling, and generally you'd think like the first thought is, oh my gosh, wait, they, they won, they won, they were the they led the league in wins last year in the American League. Why would they subtract from the team? No, they're selling the 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 organization. The franchise is going to be sold, which is great because John Angelos is 
respectfully, not, not honestly, not that respectfully, one of the most insufferable owners in the sport. I mean, we saw the things that went on uh, last year with, with their broadcast team and uh, the frustration of of not spending when you have such a, a talented ball club. And I, you know, the, the report is that it's you know, a pair of private equity guys that are going to go and uh, potentially buy this franchise for one point seven two five billion dollars. And first of all, it sounds like a great deal considering the Marlins sold for one point two billion dollars a while back now. Uh, second of all, these are private equity guys that have just uh, been able to make money on on a lot of different things. They're very clever. They just I, they're serial entrepreneurs that uh, David Rubenstein, I'm pretty sure, like bought the Magna Carta and then there are like aspects of the Magna Carta and then made money off of that and built a whole exhibit around like these guys are always looking for opportunities to invest. And I think they probably saw the Orioles, saw the stadium, saw what's going on, saw what they're building and said, dude, let's just take advantage of an opportunity here and uh, let's build this franchise into what it should actually be, which is a major player in, in the sport in terms of spending market. And, you know, of course, just perpetual competitiveness with what's been built top to bottom. So I, I think this is one of the, if you could make like a power rank, Peter, of like teams that would be better off with a new owner, they're up there. You know, obviously the A's are going to be number one, but the Orioles are right up there in terms of, of franchises in MLB that I would like to see have a new owner. So this is great news for Orioles fans and, and great news for the sport. And talk about just the people that are coming in, right? The potential new ownership group. You have David Rubenstein, who is the co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlisle Group, which manages $382 billion from 28 offices around the world. Number two, Michael Bloomberg, who has a net worth of $96.3 billion. And then you have Michael Arogetti, co-founder, CEO, president of Ares Management Corp., manages $341 billion in assets. He's a billionaire by net worth. And Cal Ripken Jr. So you have a bunch Hard of to have him involved. wealthy people, humanly possible, teaming up with Cal Ripken. It has an element of Magic Johnson coming in with the Dodgers. Yeah, it's not exact, but look at what the Dodgers have become. And if we're talking about a new ownership group who is now willing to spend money with a team coming off a hundred win season, a team with the no doubt best farm system in baseball. If I am an Orioles fan right now, I have to be really, really happy. The one thing is about John Angelos. Yes, he hasn't spent any money. And it has been incredibly infuriating, but I don't think it's been all bad because they have invested money in the international bonus pool, right? They've been signing free agents. They have been at least investing in the farm system. I'm not trying to say that he's good. I'm just trying to say that I don't think they're moving on from a John Fisher in Oakland, I, right? I think Angelos is pretty pretty hated in Baltimore though. I think it's beyond the money too. I think it's the way he, he kind of operates and, and in the way that that franchise was kind of has been run and uh, the environment. I mean, Angelos has been sued by his own brother. Um, so it's Not like, ideal. He's a certain kind of guy. And again, just what happened with, with, with the broadcast booth last year, I think was, was really opening. I'm like, you can't say anything remotely. It wasn't even negative about the team. Uh, and we saw what happened with, 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 what was it? Kevin Smith getting suspended. So it, it's just, it, it's a unique situation where I just feel like it can only be better. I don't know much about these guys. You give a little bit of a background. He's 
they're got to be better than than what they've had with, with Angelos in terms of just I think engaging with the community, you know, being well liked, and people being more excited to support the the Baltimore Orioles. So uh, yeah, it hasn't been as bad as as the A's or 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 you know some other situations as you mentioned, but uh, I, I do think a, a change here is very welcomed by uh, the Baltimore Orioles fans. And I think a big part of it is he also, you know, owning Masson, there was just a lot of control and, and a lot of unique things. And, was, and Kevin Brown, I should say, uh, Kevin Brown just being suspended and, and that whole situation really soured me on, on the way that Angelos goes about his business. I know that they've you know been restrictive of certain media members in the past. Like I just, I'm just re- like excited for a new and refreshed Baltimore Orioles where we can just enjoy the team on the field. I don't want to know who the owners are. I don't, I don't want to hear about the owners. I was hearing way too much about John Angelos. Couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. I I, I guess I am just impressed with more Mike Elias than I guess I am John Angelos, right? I'm giving John Angelos some credit for just simply hiring Mike Elias and what Mike Elias has done with this farm system. Now, Mike Elias has been scared is the wrong word, but it's not the wrong word. He has been very hesitant to trade from this incredible influx of prospects, and he's been hesitant. And that hesitancy this offseason could end up biting the Orioles in the butt. We don't know. But what I am excited about is when this ownership group does take over, we hope, right? Because it's going to be months before it's officially approved. It's got to be approved by, you know, the board, the other owners, right? They have to approve this. I think they will. It's going, I think they will as well. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of time before this. Yeah. Like it's not, oh, they're sold. Now the Orioles are going to go trade for Dylan Cease or Corbin Burns or any of these guys. No. no, I think it's going to take another year. But the most exciting part about this is now you're going to give Michael Elias money. What is he going to do now? Is that hesitancy down to his core? And even with money, he won't make that move to get them finally over the top. Or are we going to unlock a demon version of Michael Elias? Yeah. That, and we'll, what if he fun. starts getting crazy and starts ended up being one of the best general managers in the sports? Because you, no one can debate his ability to develop a farm system. Now, I know he's had a couple of number one picks. It helps when you get Jackson Holiday number one. But at the time... Jackson Holiday was not the favorite to go number one, no, right? No. Adley Rutschman certainly was, yeah. but he didn't screw that up. But it's the Kobe Mayos of the world. It's the Norbies. It's the Luis Ortiz. It's the Colton Cowsers. The and guys who didn't go number Daniel one Daniel Basayo and IFA. Uh, Gunnar Henderson was not a top 30 pick, right? That there, There's a lot of instances where their key pieces, they've been able to identify these guys, and it's been really impressive. So, no, I'm excited because I feel like m- maybe with a little bit more of a budget, he won't be as as – you know, as nervous to misuse an asset, right? And you know, when you're not spending money, you got to operate really carefully. You got to operate like the Rays. Every asset matters. You got to legitimately uh, maximize every drop that you've got. But when you have a little bit of money, it can bail you out of spots. And that's why you see the Dodgers build sustainable, you know, sustainable talent from top to bottom of the organization. But they're okay trading prospects away because one, they're confident that they can replenish and two, uh, they're confident that they can bail themselves out when they need to in free agency and, and also make trades where they can extend guys. It's less enticing to make these trades when you know you can't extend the guy, when you know you can go get a glass now and then immediately extend him. It's a lot more palatable to go part with those key pieces because now you got him as part of your franchise for, for eight years instead of the one and a half or two years of control. So I'm with you. I hope that this creates a more aggressive Michael Elias, which would be really fun because 
they've got by far baseball's best farm system. I think baseball is maybe the one industry where we're getting excited about private equity guys entering yeah. the space. I'll take anything. Yes. I'll take it. If they more spend, give it to me. Yeah. More, <laughs> more, more of me. them. Fine. I know. It's so funny. <laughs> Orioles are like, yeah, bring me more bank money. Yeah. I want more oil money in my team. I don't even, I don't think they care where the money comes from at this point. I mean, because they're, they're so close. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see how it all shakes out. Well, Orioles fans should be over the moon, excited, get Mike Elias some money and let's see what he turns into. Could be a demon. I'm very, very excited. And I'm also very, very excited for our fantasy baseball preview with Eno Saris. We welcome on Eno Saris to the Just Baseball Show, writer for The Athletic, host of the Rates and Barrels podcast, creator of Stuff Plus, the newest member of the Fantasy Sports Writers Association Hall of Fame. And Eno, your starting pitching rankings just came out on The Athletic. That was a long-winded intro because you are a legend of the industry. It is so great to have you on. How is the offseason treating you? Pretty good. You know, all those things just mean I'm old. (laughs) (laughs) Just thinking, going off of that, that we were joking about it before you you came on, where you make the the joke that you're old, but... You're a Hall of Famer already. You're still very much in your your prime of your career. If we're talking about like a playing career, what, like what is it like to to be in the Hall of Fame but still be adding to your resume? Because it's so different than what we're used to usually for players. No managers will kind of see that, but you know, again, you 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 push the boundaries with stuff plus and new things all the time. Uh, yet you know you're being recognized as someone that has a lifetime of achievement, and that's got to be a uh. pretty cool you know balance of things. It's a little bit weird, actually. Yeah, because, you know, you don't want to rest on your laurels and something that can happen with fantasy because it's so cyclical and because baseball is so cyclical, you can just do what you did before. You know, mm-hmm. you can kind of be like, oh, OK, this time of the year I do my pitching ranks and this time of the year I do this. And you can kind of just fall into a thing where you're not innovating. And so uh, I just try to think of things differently. It helps. I, I think that I'm an immigrant. That I came to baseball and I came to this country and um I came at it with a sort of a fresh look. And uh, so I kind of, I see, I just, sometimes I see it and I wonder like, could you do like, what would baseball on the moon be like? I try to come up with just like weird ideas to kind of spur on a little creativity. And um, you know, one of the ideas that I have that I can't do yet because the, the, the the data isn't public, but I know the teams have this is um, I'd like to do a bat path grade. So the way that I think of stuff plus is like stuff is the physical characteristics of your pitches um, and and just the nastiness of your pitches. Location plus is your command. That's breaking a pitcher down into its components. I'd like to do the same thing with a bat where I'd say, you know, I could have a path grade like path plus, you know, and that might have bat speed in it and and bat angles. Um, And then I'd have decision plus. That's like almost like the command plus for a hitter. It's like decision plus is not only do you like swing at strikes and not swing at balls, but like maybe a little bit more granular, you know, uh, maybe make it count and pitch type adjusted and and, and do some stuff there. Uh, so then I'd have, you know, pitching plus and batting plus, you know, and, and to just be it'd be like what I'd done before, but it'd be f- hopefully further innovation. So. You know, I, I just try to stay with my sources to with within baseball, see what they're doing, try to think of things in a clean new way um, and, uh, you know, not not just be like, well, you know, job's done. <laughs> and 
we're going to talk about stuff plus we're going to talk about some pitchers that you're high on hitters that you're high on so this is going to be a great episode for all of our fantasy baseball listeners or just enjoy enjoyers of baseball in general um but before that i want to ask what launched this passion for fantasy baseball in particular right you come over right you're from jamaica correct uh, yeah, uh, I came from Germany at the time, but I was born in Jamaica, lived there for a long time. And then, uh, you know, uh, went by, via Germany, came to uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. And, and then what prompted fantasy? I, you know, I actually shared a little a moment with this with Chili Davis, who's uh, a fellow Jamaican who was, who was born uh, in Jamaica and then played in the big leagues for a long time. He said that baseball is a way to be American. Um, and so I was just coming to this country and being like, you know, I don't want to feel like, you know, somebody else. I want to, I want to be like, you know, one of the crew. Um, and so, um, you know, they were out there collecting baseball cards. So I started collecting baseball cards and they were out there playing stickball and doing the Julio Franco and doing the Gary Sheffield with the bat, you know? So that's, so I was doing that. Um, you know, my sharkish sort of tendencies came out and I, started you know winning my baseball card trades and uh uh i i started uh being like well you know if i don't get too attached to mark lemke and jeff blouser and all these like you know mid 80s braves um you know i can probably get some pretty good cards out here same time um my stepfather after he split with my mom moved to vegas and started betting on baseball and so he's forever had this passion that runs into the numbers and runs into trying to predict the game and trying to uh trying to you know talk about who's who's the best who's good who's going to win tonight and so i have that both of those things in me but one thing i like about base fantasy baseball that's a little different from betting is um i think there's more of a community aspect you when you when with betting there's a little bit more of an immediate return on you know you're investing and then you get an immediate return that day that's a kind of a push the button get the answer kind of deal with fantasy baseball especially season long fantasy baseball you have to put your money in and wait 6 months you know and so that creates uh message boards trading uh getting you know into onto twitter and talking about things and um, you know, potting. I think a lot of the energy and community that we get comes from season-long fantasy. So I hope hope it doesn't fall behind because I, I think uh, it's a it's a cool way to like stay in touch with people. You know, you think about people who like graduate college and like have a fantasy league together. Yeah. You know, so that they can still talk trash on each other even though they've half moved to different cities. So uh, that's that's I, I like that a little bit better than betting. So I kind of that, that's why I went towards fantasy with my career. You mentioned that the sharkish tendencies and and how you started to pick up on that when you're exchanging baseball cards and and you know in a lot of different ways fantasy baseball is very similar where you know you're you're trying to you know swap an asset for an asset that you think is going to be more valuable and and do it before the other party's going to realize that it's going to be more valuable. But <laughs> when did you kind of realize that you had this this edge, right? That you had the maybe ability to take this information if you put the time in and and synthesize it a little bit maybe more effectively or more uniquely than uh, your peers. Like when, when did it start to click for you that, Hey, I've got a knack for this kind of thing. And I'm able to maybe find some different angles that uh, a lot of other people aren't. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that um, I just kind of got to early was, was pitching. And, you know, if you look at pitching projections, they're a little bit worse than hitting projections. Uh, they have been historically, 
Um, and, and so that was an opportunity for me. And when I first got into fantasy, I had these silly rules. Like I'm not going to take a, a, a pitcher until the 10th round. And, uh, that was really uh, productive for me because I was able to find undervalued pitchers. And that was back in the day when I was just looking at things like batting average on balls in play and, and, and being like, well, this guy struck out a lot of people and didn't walk a lot of people. So he's good, you know, kind of more basic analysis um but as i and then i started writing about it and i had to tell people about it so i lost that edge um and so i had to research my next edge while i'm telling people about my last edge and then i had to tell people about it and so i had to keep keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing and so the the interesting thing about publishing and playing um you know is that it, it can hurt you. I mean, I get into these high stakes rooms and everybody there, you know, can easily jump on uh, the athletic and find my pitcher ranks. And like, they know who I've got circled. They know what my cue looks like, you know, without having to look at it, you know? Um, and so, you know, it, there are some downfalls, but the nice thing is we go back to that last conversation about, you know, how do you keep pushing? If you publish and you play, you have to keep pushing. Yeah. You have to keep pushing. There has to be something that you're working on that you haven't quite published yet, or there, there, you have to be more intimate with the insides and the outsides of Stuff Plus than other people because you've put it all out there. You have to know, you know, little things about it that other people don't know about it. So, um, you know, it's just uh, it's a constant pushing thing. But I had this one draft that was it was kind of and I and I love Dynasty because one of the things that's interesting about Dynasty, you're talking about like I'm trying to trade like I'm trying to win this trade in Dynasty like or in fantasy keeper situations. You can come to a trade where people have different uh, temporal needs, time needs. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to win now. You're trying to win later. Then you can you can actually do some win win trading. Um, which, which, you know, is, is nice. If you've been playing with guys forever, you don't want to keep, you know, winning trades or whatever. It's kind of gets annoying. So <laughs> yeah, I'd imagine people um, are like, I don't want to trade with Eno anymore at some point. Yeah, like, I, I'd trade with you. Yeah, <laughs> you right. So, uh, so the, uh, I think the one year was, so I'm trying to find this Carlos Carrasco broke out and it was the year he first broke out. So yeah, it must've been 2014. Uh, so let me look at the pitching leaders that year. If, it, if I can jog them all. Uh, uh, oh yeah. Okay. That was it. So in, uh, one off season draft, uh, in this league called devil's rejects, we, it was a 20 team league and we all kept 28 players. So 560 players are off the board <laughs> before we start drafting. We have a restocking draft to get to like 40 man roster. So you imagine 560 players are off the board. We're in the dregs. Like this is, these are players that don't get drafted in regular leagues. And this is my first year in the league. And I jump in this league and in the supplemental draft, I draft Carlos Carrasco, Garrett Richards, and Jake Arrieta um, all the year they broke out. Like 2014 was the, their breakout years for all three of those. And Garrett Richards that year had a 261 ERA. Uh, Carlos Carrasco uh, had a two. Uh, what did he have a two five five ERA and Jake Arrieta went on that uh, that pretty nasty string of, uh, of 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 good work himself. He had a two fifty three ERA. So three guys with a sub three ERA after pick five five sixty kind of announced myself in that league. Unfortunately, I changed the way people draft in that league. 
because now what does everybody do in the first three, four, five rounds of the, the restocking draft is pick veteran, you know, pick starting pitchers that might have a role, pick, you know, guys that might break out, pick the guys that have opportunity. One of the big things that I did that year, each one of them was different. Arietta uh, had opportunity in that Cubs rotation. Carlos Carrasco had, you know, good strikeout walk numbers in the minors and Garrett Richards just threw hard. I picked him because he threw hard, you know? And so people have kind of uh, taken that. And so now, um, you know, I've had to try and innovate off of that. And, you know, it's just, you're just always trying to get better. So I really want to get into this stuff plus conversation, but now you have my brain titillated (laughs) right now after pick 560 for people in a similar situation now in 2024, 10 years later, should be looking at at the bottom of drafts that maybe you think will have an opportunity to break out this season for all of our fantasy people down there at the end of their drafts. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to look at the the guys who didn't even make my rankings um, and and see what I can spot here. Uh, Ho- Jose Budo uh, with the Mets is an interesting guy for me because I think he has a legitimate out pitch and there were some changes in his pitch mix. And one of the things you're always looking for is opportunity. So basically, as the six or seven starter in New York behind veterans, that's an that's an easy opportunity for me um, in terms of uh, of making it on there. Joey Cantillo. Uh, in Cleveland is basically the sixth starter, has had some really good numbers in the minors, um, and they may even trade away Shane Bieber this year, uh, you know, if the t- season doesn't go the way that it goes, uh, the, way, the, the way I want it to go. Uh, I even like Johnny Brito, uh, who's just traded to the Padres. Again, one of the ways that I look is not always just Stuff Plus. It's, you know, Stuff Plus being good enough, maybe command, different ways that can be good, but also opportunity. If you want them to break out this year, they have to at least be the six or seven starting pitcher on the depth chart. And that's good enough because people use six and seven starting pitchers in a given season. But that's where, you know, I would get on fan graphs. They have these depth charts. You can just look and see who's six, who's seventh, who do I like in this group? And that's where you can get your depth guys. And on fan graphs, stuff plus, you know, has taken the baseball world by storm. Instead of just asking you what is Stuff Plus, I think a better way, because I think there is a a disconnect between some baseball fans, right? Some baseball fans who want to turn on the game and maybe they don't want to go on fan graphs mm-hmm. and use Stuff Plus. Why should a baseball fan who's maybe not super into the data start trusting a stat like Stuff Plus? Well... I have a data reason for you, which is awkward from that intro, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it becomes meaningful really quickly. So it just, it just describes, uh, people's stuff really well, but, and it does, and it, and it's predictive really quickly. So it's a, it's a, it's a strong set. It's really predictive and it's, and it, it tells you what you want it to tell you right away. Why you would care about it is I think this, I think of a, a guy like Henry Rodriguez. It's this guy who used to throw a hundred, but um, it was straight as a bean. Um, oh, I think of Nathan Ivaldi. When he first came up, he threw so hard and everyone demolished his fastball. And it's because it was straight as a bean. And um, so you you have these pitchers where sometimes you're looking and your eyes deceive you in a way where you see the velo or you see a big movement. There are also guys that have big moving sinkers that are actually kind of easy for people you know, to see for whatever reason. What Stuff Plus does is takes release point and movement 
and velo and puts it all together in a way that our brains don't always do that well. A lot of times we just go right to the, the radar gun and be like, oh, that guy's nasty. He's throwing 99. Well, is it as nasty as somebody else? You know, is it what's the difference between like a, a Felix Bautista fastball and uh, I don't know, somebody else who, who throws hard, but it's not not quite as good. So or like an early Evaldi fastball. So, you know, uh, and then the last thing is there's this concept that's pretty fundamental baseball, which is called ride, which is, you know, you've got this, you've got a, a ball that's counter counter countering the effects of gravity. And so it doesn't necessarily, you can actually see it with a beach ball. If you throw a beach ball with the right spin, a beach ball will go up. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've ever done that, we try to throw a beach ball to somebody and you throw it and it has spin. It just goes up instead of like towards the person that is happening in a baseball, but because the baseball is heavier and being thrown faster, it's not going up, but it is countering the effects of gravity. That's really hard to see with the eyes. Like yeah. I, I, like if a guy has good ride, Felix Bautista has some of the best ride in baseball. You might watch that with your eyes and be like, that's straight. That's just a straight fastball. Why do you, why is that good? It's because it's jumping on the hitters and they can't, they can't line it up. Their brain has, they have to trick their brain to be able to, to hit it. So there are certain aspects of stuff that the, the, the human eye is just not going to see that well. And the machines pick up well. So that's, that's why I think stuff plus is interesting. And, and what I love about that description is I think it's almost a way of saying that it, it gives you the hitter's perspective because a hitter is going to come back to the dugout and say that got on me fast or you yeah. know, I, I thought I was on top of that and I just wasn't, you know, or I don't even know why I pulled the trigger at that fastball up there. And and for them, it didn't look straight. Right. It looked different. So it allows us in, in the seats or, in, in, you know, in our couch that to be able to say, OK, that's why he took that swing that he took at it, because it always drives me nuts when I hear somebody say like, oh, you know, what are you swinging at? I'm like, well, there, there's probably a good reason why that guy swung at that. Uh, and <laughs> we probably don't understand it. And that's what Stuff Plus helps explain. Now to peel it back a little bit further, though, you you explain the concepts. And uh, we've talked about it a little bit on on the Just Baseball show, actually a lot about pitch shapes and things like that. But of course, you know, that's secondhand learning from people like yourself and you know trying to explain you know through the grapevine of, of what you've created here. But what is it that makes a pitch stand out and stuff in the eyes of stuff plus like you talked about kind of the idea that gravity you know if it defies gravity it's a pitch that has basically a differentiator from what we are used to seeing so it's you know, like standard deviations away from a generic fastball or a generic breaking yeah. ball from a generic release height if you were explaining it to like a a class of of 7th graders or 6th graders what would be the the easiest way to describe how stuff plus is calculated and and what makes a player more proficient in the eyes of stuff plus in an individual pitch or maybe lesser uh, in the eyes of an individual pitch. To some extent, we're just trying to map like what's happened before to pitch velocities and movements and stuff. But one important thing is weird is good. And that's you were talking about that a little bit. Weird is good. The more normal this pitch is, the more it lines up with what they are training for every day, what they yep. see in BBP, what they what they see out of the machine. Like that's that's the more normal thing. The weirder it gets off of that, the better it is. I think one of my best examples is Paul Seawald because Paul Seawald throws 93, 94. You watch him on TV. You might think. Why is everybody missing? How does he have this great strikeout rate? Why is he a closer? He does not look like a closer. Um, and part of the reason why is he kind of throws from this like lower slot. So you, the, your brain as a hitter says, 
okay, this guy's throwing kind of side army. So side armors in the past do everything goes side. Everything goes side and goes down. This is, it, it kind of fades. This is what side armors do. This is what I expect. And then he kind of throws a little bit of a bean from that, like a little bit of like a, it doesn't ride as much as like a, a Felix Batista pitch, but it rides a lot more than, um, you know, like a coat, like a Bradford. Bradford was this guy who threw from his knuckles or like uh, your true side armors. It, it, it rides more than people expect. And so it jumps up on them. And so when that jumps up on them, then that makes them, you know, makes the slider even better. Cause now they're kind of like, Oh, you know, I can't, I can't dive in, you know, and hit that slider. And though, though the slider is not that great just by looking at its movement profile by itself with that fastball and with that release point, now you're starting to get an understanding of what it's like to be, like you say, a batter in the box because you want to dive and hit that slider because it's not that good. And you think that fastball is just going to fall away. So you really just think everything's going to be low and I'm going to, I'm going to golf this out of here. And instead he throws a bean up on your, on your chest and it feels like it's going to explode into your head. And the next time you don't really want to dive in there on that slider. So um, it is a thing that like looks, it defines all the secondary stuff off the fastball and it kind of looks at what an arsenal is like overall. But yeah, I think Paul Seawald is a good example of how you, you might not see it with your own eyes and, and stuff plus helps you realize why he's good. And stuff plus has become the mainstream now. You know, a lot of people are referencing, you know, this model in order to make projections, whether that be in fantasy or just general baseball talk. But you have been messing with this, creating this for years now. I'm curious about the timeline of Stuff Plus. Like what was kind of a light bulb of, oh, now it's much better than when I first created it. Can you kind of take us through the timeline of what has been improved over these past few years? Yeah, so that year that I took Carrasco, I, I now that I actually remember better, um, Carrasco, when he wasn't that good, but he actually pitched a little the year before, had two uh, secondary pitches that had high whiff rates. Um, and so the very first thing that I did when I started breaking pitchers into components to analyze them better was just look at the results on the pitches separately. And so when I looked at Carlos Carrasco, I said, wow, he has a slider and a changeup that both got high whiff rates. Like he has what he needs to succeed. Now, the the problem with that is, um, you know, I ran into the problem of like Anthony Discafani's uh, changeup. I thought it was good because in small samples it got whiffs, but it wasn't actually good. And if he threw it more, it would get exposed. Mm. You know, so I realized, you know, it's not just good enough to look at results in small samples. Like here's R.A. Dickey. R.A. Dickey throws a, cur- a, a, a knuckleball 85% of the time. If you look at the results on his fastball, they're amazing. He has like really good results on the fastball. But if he threw the fastball 50% of the time, it would get whooped because it's like 83. You know, <laughs> It's like it's not a good fastball. So, um, you know, th- when I realized that I went into round two, round two was like, OK, now we have pitch FX. Can we look at what? can we start tying aspects of the pitch to those results? So I started looking at what makes a slider good. And I was like, oh, velo is really important for breaking balls. You know, we don't think of it immediately, but, you know, velo is velo and associated drop. Like if you can throw a pitch 86 miles an hour with plus drop, it's going to be a good breaking ball, you know? And I started doing that. And Harry Pavlidis over at at Baseball Perspectives did that for changeups. I went and looked at fastballs. I was like, oh, ride is good, you know? You know, like stuff that we take for granted now. I was like, I was like trying to figure that stuff out. 
And as I was doing that, I was like, well, this is still kind of frustrating because, you know, you know, I'm figuring out little pitches by themselves, but there's always once you put them together in an arsenal, it, it's different. You know, like the, like the same pitch from one guy and another guy, um, you know, the, the way I realized it was that like Jake Odorizzi learned his his split finger from Alex Cobb, but Jake Odorizzi's was never as good as Alex Cobb's. And it's and it's like the same grip and he learned it from the guy. So I was like, OK, I'm starting to think about like slots, arm slots. And I did this thing where I actually uh, looked at uh, I tried to predict movement just based on release point. And then I looked at people whose movement was very different from what you would predict based on release point. That was actually kind of an early stuff plus thing where I was like, oh, wow, some guys like Josh Hader, he throws from a sidearm, but he throws with his hand vertical. And so Josh Hader looks like he's going to be Chris Sale, but he's he's not. It's it's all like kind of more vertical. And so um, I started being like, OK, at some point we need to kind of put this all together and, and that's where Stuff Plus was born. It was like, we start, we anchor it to the fastball. We start looking at movements based off the fastball because that the fastball is what everybody's trying to hit in the box. Mm-hmm. And so they're timing to that. They're timing to that. They're thinking about that. And so any breaking ball or any secondary has to kind of be defined off of that. And so that's Stuff Plus uses machine learning and does stuff that I can't even explain myself, you know, but it, it does find a way to explain that. And I think it ties into your Seawald example perfectly because, you know, most pitchers from that release point, as you mentioned, are going to have more, usually more horizontal movement than vertical movement. And he has slightly more vertical movement than horizontal. It's like 14 and 10. So my last question as it pertains to stuff plus is is kind of along those lines. That's an extreme example. But assuming pitchers are are less out sideways and we're just talking about release height in general, something we talk about a lot is induced vertical break and and release height and how one or the other or a little bit of a combination of both can really make you, you know, closer to that outlier territory. Is there like a tipping point where it's better to have the the 20 inches of vert at a you know six foot release height or a, you know, let's say 15 to 16 inches of vert from a five, five or five, four release height? How does stuff plus or just yourself in general kind of synthesize and, and, and differentiate what's more valuable, you know, more ride from a higher release point or or less ride, but from a much lower release point? And I assume results kind of dictate that. But, you know, what was Not that really. process I mean, of it's... sorting that out? It's a, it's a different answer. It's, 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 I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, that's what, I, that's what I don't like about this. Cause I'm, I, I publish, I write, I want to educate. I want to tell people. And the problem is it's stuff plus like it's doing all these little calculations, you know, and it's comparing all these little things and it's, it's horizontal release points, vertical release point. It's vertical movement. It's horizontal movement. It's, you know, it's all these things. I think there's, I got to put pitcher height in there. Because Bailey Ober is throwing from a certain release point, but he's six foot nine. And that's gotta be different than like Sonny Gray throwing from a very same release point, but being like five foot nine. You know, it's like there's, you know, there's there's more that can go into it. But what I would say is that if you want to look at something like a vertical approach angle, that's not explicitly in stuff plus, but that's what it's capturing. Mm-hmm. So you kind of you want to sometimes adjust it for where they're throwing in the zone because that'll change. It, vertical approach angle is like just trying to draw that line of the pitch coming across the plate, yep. you know, and uh, and it, that's different at different heights. But in any case, vertical approach angle will give you 
a good sense of that relationship between release point height and IVB and what's good and what's not. You know, because so if you can out. look at vertical approach angle for Paul Seawald and you can compare it to someone who's a little bit more over the top and has normal IVB and, and sort of start to get at that vertical approach angle, we'll capture what you're talking about. Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio. So go check it out on Fangraphs. Go to the pitching section of Fangraphs and then go to pitch modeling and you'll see the stuff plus leaderboards. There's also location plus, pitching plus, everything you need to make the best projection possible. And if we're talking about projections, your top pitchers just came out in terms of fantasy on The Athletic. We'll link that in the episode description as well. You know, always does an amazing job. So if you are getting to a fantasy draft, Make sure to use these rankings to make you a better fantasy baseball player. I have a couple of questions about some certain players, but I definitely want to open it up and ask you about some guys that you're really high on. And we'll talk about hitters as well. But the first question I have is about Kyle Bradish. Kyle Bradish finished second in stuff plus last year, right? The fastball was always kind of his issue lowered the four seam usage, but his breaking balls are just pitches from hell, right? They're darting all over the place and he was extremely successful, but on your starting pitching rankings, he's falling outside of the top 15, but he was second in your stuff plus model. That's why I really wanted to ask you. What do you think Kyle Bradish looks like in 2024? Yeah, so the the best use, I think, of Stuff Plus for evaluation, like the way we're using it, there's two, there's two really strong ways to use it. One is in season, in a debut, um, Stuff Plus can tell you after one start a lot about that pitcher. So you got a young guy coming up, maybe he didn't have prospect pedigree, but he had some good numbers in the minors, and you're wondering, you know, what's, which way is it going to go? You know, you're in a you're in a league where do I you know this Sunday do I pick him up you know or do I do how much money do I put on this guy when I'm trying to pick him up do I bet him on bet on him in a second do I DFS him in a second start you know that sort of stuff stuff plus is going to tell you a lot quickly it can tell you how good a fastball is after 50 fastballs so one start you're you're getting to know a lot two starts and you know all you need to know from a stuff plus standpoint what happens though is that after those two starts, other on-field results become more important. So Stuff Plus is really powerful in the smallest of samples. It's really powerful with relievers. There are pitchers that succeed year after year that don't have great Stuff Plus. Aaron Nola uh, does not have above-average Stuff Plus, uh, but he's been who he's been for such a long time. Max Freed, the model does not like Max Freed. Maybe I'm missing something and I'm always trying to make the model better. Uh, but the model has never liked Max Freed. And yet he's one of seven pitchers with a sub three ERA in the last uh, starting pitchers with a sub three ERA over the last three years. So 
you know, the model can take some L's, you know, it's not, it's not going to be perfect. And so with Kyle Bradish, the best thing you can do long-term is to take stuff plus and fold it into a projection system. And so that's what I've done with Jordan Rosenblum is, um, you know, what you can do then is you can age it. You can age the components. You can age the fastball stuff. Plus you can age the secondary stuff. Plus you can age, you can do park factors. Um, you can look at where stuff plus affects results and then use on-field results in other places. You know, you can kind of pair what we've done before in pitching projections with this new information. And what we've found is that stuff plus has the most impact on K percentage, batting average, batting average on balls in play and home runs for fly ball or, or barrels allowed. So stuff plus is suggesting that pitchers do have some control over balls in play. And so you add that all up, Kyle Bradish gets a three, six, four projected ERA with a 25% strikeout rate. And that's great. And it's really good. Um, it likes Bobby Miller a little bit more. Bobby Miller has outstanding stuff uh, and uh, a wider arsenal, a better fastball. He's got a 100-mile-an-hour two-plane fastball. Bradish's fastball is only okay. Um, so, you know, that's where I ended up ranking him. It's my first go at the rankings. You know, maybe maybe I'm going to push these guys ahead of Aaron Nola, uh, who's kind of been off or on again. You know, one of the, one, one of the model, model doesn't like Tarek Skubal. You know, and uh, so I have Scooble ahead of him because the traditional models love him. But maybe, maybe I move that. Uh, Freddie Peralta had the best strikeout minus walk rate in the second half of last year. He's just barely above Bradish. So it just becomes hard at the top, you know, like how far do I want to push him? But I do believe in Bradish. And I would point out that Bradish is a big stuff plus win because in 2022, when Bradish wasn't any good, uh, he had a top 20 slider uh it, by stuff plus and uh and a uh it was twenty second in baseball and stuff plus so uh he was right there um uh, you know uh with Kevin Gossman in stuff plus in the year that he was not good so you know I, I tend to bet on guys that weren't that good but had a high stuff plus in their second years especially young guys to because you know the Kyle Brash model worked for me. <laughs> How about the guys that were really good and then weren't that good recently, like a Dylan Cease? I, I'm trying to imagine, you know, because I I was excited to see where you ranked him. And I almost wanted to have you put like a GM hat on for a second here, because it, you're hearing what the asking prices are for Dylan Cease. And it, you know that he's going to be somebody that probably might not even get moved at this point if the asking prices are what they've reportedly been. But we've seen what he's been in the past. We've also seen what he's been more recently. There's no denying the stuff. The command is obviously a part of the issue, but you, you rank him at 30, you know, in, in your, in your top pitching rankings. And I think that's right around where a lot of people would have him. but you could probably see some people who are bullish expecting a bounce back. How do you assess a guy like Dylan Cease, who has had such a Jekyll and Hyde couple years where he's still young. You don't really know what it's going to look like next year, but like you said, you can kind of model it out and project it. Where did you feel like things were at both in the model and in your eyes on a Dylan Cease? And, you know, based on that, would you, fork over a package of significant prospects to, to get this guy. I think so. The model actually likes him a little better than I did. So the model suggests that I should probably have him closer to Kyle Bradish. He has a three, six, seven projection to Kyle Bradish, three, six, four, 29% strikeout rate projected than 25% for Kyle Bradish. So like 
the model might say, hey, move him ahead of Kyle Bradish and move me definitely into the top 25. I'm just a little nervous as a human being that's ranking these um, on top of a model is that the the command was so bad last year. And also his breaking ball started to morph a little bit into each other, making him kind of a two-pitch pitcher with bad command. The reason why it works so well for Strider is he has good enough command. You know, the way he explained it is if people keyhole me and think, high is hard, low is breaking ball, then all I have to do is throw a, a low fastball in the zone, you know, and then now they have to think about multiple things. Um, with Cease, you wonder sometimes if he can do something like that. It's yeah. a little bit scattershot. Um, and, you know, location plus is not as predictive as stuff plus, but it does tell me something in that, you know, it, guys with a location plus of 95 and 96 and lower, uh, there's not many of them. So as starters, they become relievers most of the time. And so the other guys with command as poor as he had, um, you know, uh, you know, last year, Carlos Rodon, that's, I think, a big reason why he got blown up the way he did. Uh, Charlie Morton, as he's getting older, um, Edward Cabrera had the same location plus as Dylan Cease last year. So awesome. it's just it's like bottom shelf command. But that 29 percent strikeout rate is enough for me. I would trade for him. And the thing about command is it kind of goes in and out. I think that my personal theory on command is that you can, like, Carlos Rodon, look at him. He, threw, he was throwing 96 last year, but he got blown up. But he had this back injury and the forearm strain. So command to me is the small health issues that you still can get on the field, but your back is barking or your knee is barking. Or like you can't you can't land on that front foot the way you want to, or you're not pushing off the right way. Little something little is happening, and you're not putting it where you're Norton used to putting it. And so uh, the good the bad news of that is it can come and go. The good news is for Dylan Cease it can come and go. <laughs> like next year could be a better year command wise for him. A pitcher with historically good command is very high on your starting pitching rankings, and that is George Kirby of the Seattle Mariners. I want to talk about him, but also some other guys that you are maybe higher on than the general market is, right? You've been noticing, all right, I put out my ranks. I see other people's ranks. Wow, I'm a lot higher on this guy than the rest of everybody else is. I think everybody is high on George Kirby, but number five is a statement, you know. I mean, he's a savant, dude. Like, you know, it is one thing we did find with Location Plus is it's more predictive if you lop off the bottom half. Like, if you just look at the guys who are good at it, they they remain good at it. Um, and he had, I think, the best Location Plus in baseball last year. And, and or just said more colloquially, he had the best command in baseball last year. George Kirby is the command guy in baseball right now. But his stuff is inching forward. You know, he was like, I'm going to throw I'm going to throw Justin Verlander's slider. And then he did. And then he's like, I'm going to throw it 89. And then he did, you know, so and then he said, I'm going to throw a splitter. And he did. So he's got this sort of, sort of savant ish, like, I'm going to do whatever I, I can to, to push this stuff forward. Even um, a knuckleball. Like yeah, he threw a knuckleball. a knuckleball for fun. Yeah. So I, I, that's, that's something that, um, is a little bit the, the human on top of the model. Uh, but even our projections, you know, three, five, nine ERA, 24% strikeout rate. It's just not quite the same strikeout rate as the guys around him. Who else would you point to that? Maybe you're higher on in the market. Uh, Logan Webb, uh, just excellent stuff. And, and, you know, 200 innings last year, 200 plus innings last year. It's in a market when we're having a hard time getting guys to throw 150. 
Um, so I just feel like it's maybe the best floor in baseball, or maybe Garrett Cole has the best floor in baseball and Logan Webb has second best, um, which is high praise. So I've got Logan Webb inside my top 10. Um, whereas other people don't necessarily have that same, uh, same approach. I don't know. I, I just love the, the, the grouping of Bobby Miller, Grayson Rodriguez, Kyle Brash and Yuri Perez. There, I know that people, other people love them. Maybe other people have them higher than I do, but those four, you can circle them and, you know, maybe wait a little bit and just grab the last one because you're going to get a young guy who has amazing stuff. Um, and, and I think you're going to have great results this year. My last question for you is you know, kind of tying back to the initial conversation of, of how you, you, you made your living here, which was, and you know, maybe identifying you know, some of these pitchers who, won't be on many people's radars. Maybe it doesn't need to be somebody like, like Peter had mentioned, like 500th in the draft, but even just looking at the back half of the top 100, you know, arms that you have here in these rankings, who's someone that you, you think could really bounce back in, in a big way. I, I'm even looking like Trevor Rogers at 77. He barely threw last year after multiple injuries and that the year before had struggled. Like that's a guy that I'd be interested in seeing or like Luis Severino at 75. Are there any other names that, that you have that you feel very confident or at least are very intrigued by their probability of either getting back to where they were or even making a leap forward after what was maybe a, a, a half step backwards last year? Yeah, Hunter Brown had an amazing first half and uh, a, a really terrible second half. And uh, you know, I've I've heard his you know descriptions of what went wrong mechanically. Uh, I, I'm just really happy that he had above average locations for the year and uh, in the first half had great stuff. I think he can get back to that stuff with the with just a couple of mechanical tweaks because he has a great history of multiple breaking balls with uh, great results in the minors. Um, so I think Hunter Brown uh, is going to be a lot better than people uh, than than people might expect after, you know, finishing the last two months like a six ERA. Um, I also uh, like Cutter Crawford a lot, and I just he's got a really good fastball. He's got multiple breaking balls. I think he's got like three breaking balls and a splitter. Um, and for some reason, he had a six ERA in Boston, and like a three three on the road, and. I know Boston's a tough place to pitch, but it almost seems like it's uh, mental at this point mm -hmm. because you look at the strikeout minus walk rate, you look at the pitch mix, almost everything's the same. And then there's a six ERA. So I, 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 he's going to have to figure it out sooner or later. And, uh, and I would just, I, I don't know what it, what it is. I, I did a piece about mounds and how people felt on mounds and they all rated Boston as one of the worst. Huh. And I think it's actually sort of psychology because the backstop is close. The play, the, the fans are on top of you and the green monster is just laughing at you over your back shoulder. And so you just feel like claustrophobic in Boston. Like, you know, every hit you're going to give up is going to be going to be smacked. So uh, Cutter Crawford is somebody I, I think he could take a step forward and, and figure that out. I got two more questions for you. Number one, we talked about a lot of guys that you're high on. Who's the pitcher that you've noticed that you've ranked a lot lower than maybe the market is is saying? Yeah, I have a, a harder time with these kind of older guys um, with wide arsenals and good command um, where the fastball is really dwindling. And I'm just worried when is that fastball velo going to get too low and it's not going to work anymore. So Eduardo Rodriguez and Chris Bassett. Uh, for me are in the low 50s and they could be lower. Honestly, their projections are for like 4.7 ERA, 4.6 uh, ERA with no strikeouts. And 
it's just not i don't think the game is going that direction like in terms of you know the game values strikeouts and um you know but eduardo you guys got a decent contract he's in a decent park uh you know so i struggled with where to put them and how much to ding them um but those two guys i have lower than most people and you've at least gotten as close to mastering the pitching side, at least from a projection standpoint, as anybody. That's why you're a Hall of Famer. But you also know your offense. Who are a couple of players that fantasy baseball nerds, like maybe ourselves or just fantasy baseball people in general, just baseball fans should be on the lookout of big offensive seasons? Well, sometimes I'm, I look for bounce backs in in early veteran, like you know, you like after 33, 34 it gets a little bit rough, but um, you know, right at twenty nine to thirty one, they can have a bad season due to injury or something and bounce right back from it. So Cedric Mullins is a guy I have circled that is going late in drafts and has thirty stolen base potential. I've gotten him as my third outfielder in a couple places, and I you know you you need. 160, 170, 180 steals now uh, to be competitive in your leagues, in your season-long leagues. And, uh, you know, getting 30 steals with non-zero power uh, where you can get them. I think Dalton Varsho is similar in that at least he's going to give you homers and stolen bases. And you can look in his history and see that he's had different approaches. Right now he's pulling everything and pulling everything in the air. Could he do some of that and do some more spraying? Could he could he find it, soften that out and get some more line drives and get that batting average up to 230, 240 instead of really as low as it was last year? If he can get to 240, he's a 2020 guy. That's that's pretty valuable where he's going in drafts. And that's a couple of outfielders. But uh, Tyro Estrada is just one of these boring guys that just doesn't get enough love. He's like a 2020, 250 guy every year. He's not too old where you expect it to fall off. Everyone thinks that just because he's in San Francisco, they're not going to play him that often. It's going to be, you know, one of these things. But he's an excellent, excellent defender at second. I think they're just going to plug and play at second. So, you know, he's just one of those. Sometimes you, we call him oatmeal on rates and barrels where, you know, they don't have the hype and no one's circling their name, but they're just valuable all, every year. It's a I, good breakfast. Fills you I, up. I, I have one more too. I'm sorry. I had to look at one more thing. Yoshinobu Yamamoto. We've talked about Uh him a lot on the podcast. I, I think one of my favorite things I was able to put together this year was kind of breaking down his arsenal from, you know, like an analytical standpoint, kind of explaining how he's in a, very, very unique with the low release, the carry he gets, and also some arm side run. The whole arsenal is nuts, uh-huh. but it's also his first year in major league baseball. And it's going to be a, a lot of spotlight and attention on him. You have him at number eight. What does it take? You know, what is a successful year for Yoshinobu Yamamoto, considering that, you know, you don't have some of the same information that you have for some of these other players. It's a little bit harder to project ERA and things like that. Um, what what would be the the absolute like success story for him? And then what's kind of the baseline, you think, for his first year? Well, the baseline projections uh, fall in the sort of mid threes category with more than a strikeout per inning and excellent command. Um, I think they might Pretty be good. missing the boat a little bit on home runs. They're all projecting, you know, a fair amount of home runs where he barely, like, he can give like three home runs all year or something yeah. last year. So, like, you know, I don't know. I'm, he's not going to do that in the majors, but I also don't think he's going to have like a 1.4 home runs per nine, uh, like Steamer says. So, um, in terms of like superlative success, I could see him doing a low threes, high twos, uh, ERA and just and having a great season. The 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 thing that I, I would see that I would love to hear in spring or something 
is about a slider because the cutter is his worst pitch. And he's a guy who can is too, can really, uh, he has like an Adam Wainwright, Max Fried-esque big curveball. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, Adam Wainwright never really developed a great uh, slider to go with that. But Max Fried did develop a slider that's almost better than his curveball. He uses a lot now. So if there's any question other than maybe his size and durability, uh, I just want to know about his slider. Because this is a slider league, and that's the only thing I couldn't circle. I was like, yes, you know, plus, plus elite fastball. Yes, plus, plus elite splitter. Yes, plus, plus elite curveball. But it's a slider league, and I want to know about the slider. So basically what you're saying is the Dodgers have to bring back Clayton Kershaw because he's got the big loopy curveball, but he's and made he his learned money a great off that slider. slider. Yeah, exactly. So Dodgers, <laughs> you heard it here first. You have to bring back Clayton Kershaw and saying heard it here first is the most hilarious well, thing to say, because I think all Dodger nation wants Kershaw back. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, I, you know, Kershaw picked up his his slider in spring training as a major leaguer. Um, and even if he doesn't sign with them, you know, he'll be around. So I, I would, I wouldn't be, and that would be a great grip. I think for Yamamoto, a great you know, sort of an 89 mile an hour gyro slider would go really well because all of his other pitches have such great movement to have kind of a bullet slider in the middle of that. That's what he's trying to do with the cutter. So that's what I would teach him. I would try to teach him Kershaw slide. I mean, I know he's a lefty and Yamamoto's a righty, but that's, I would try to teach him a tight little bullet slider. Yamamoto with Kershaw slider. Yeah. Yeah. I'm over. You know, thank you so much for coming on. This was awesome. Kind of a great fantasy baseball preview here on what's today, February 1st, February 2nd, whatever day it is. You know, greatly appreciate you coming on. The closer ranks are coming out soon. What else should people be on the lookout for uh, with all your great writing? Uh, Just, uh, just trying different things. I'm, you know, uh, I've got, this is the time of year where I have a lot of projects and nothing's, nothing's, uh, really on the top, on the top of the table, but the, on my podcast on rates and barrels, we're going to, uh, announce a, uh, a new rotating guest, uh, shortly that I think people will like, and we're going to take a, a slightly new direction. We're going to explain some of these things when you talk about, you know, IVB and you talk about horizontal and vertical approach angle, we're going to, you know, try to explain some of these things with someone who's played the game. Um, so that'll, that'll be, uh, uh, and a, a cool way for people to kind of understand these concepts. If they, if they don't understand all the words that are being thrown around. Well, can't wait to see that. And I'm also excited to speak to you next. When you talk about your new edge, tying it back to the beginning of the episode, when you find an edge and then you explain it, then you're already off to the new thing. So very excited for the next Half time plus. you come on the just baseball. <laughs> exactly. Something <laughs> we're going to find something here from, you know, but again, thank you so much. And make sure to go follow Eno on Twitter. We'll link it in the episode description. Eno, appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. Eno Saris is a book. He is an encyclopedia inside of a human being. To be able to pick his brain in February, right, before a lot of people have started to put their fantasy hats on, just to give you a little taste. But over here at Just Baseball, the Just Fantasy Baseball show is going to get Back up and running. We're going to have tons of articles on JustBaseball.com. We got you covered this fantasy baseball season. But to pick the mind of a Hall of Famer like Eno Saris, I mean, what an opportunity. It's it's so cool to... There's certain people where you can watch them operate. You can watch them as they're speaking and, and, and thinking. And you can legitimately see the wheels turning. 
inside of their head. And like, Eno is one of those guys where like when he's speaking, it's so deliberate. You can tell he's sifting through so many thoughts and, and, and it's just the way he operates is so unique that it's just, it was, so, I was so excited when, when we were able to get him on the show, you know, when you, when you had mentioned like, Oh, Eno's in like, just because it's, it's a guy that you don't, you feel like an hour is not enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we knew that was going to happen no matter what. Uh, but it's just so fascinating to to see somebody that look. You have to push the boundaries in, in in a sport where there's a lot of restriction. You know, there is a lot of infrastructure in those boundaries of of people that don't want to hear about your new stats, who don't think that you know what you're coming up with is is going to be anything new. They've heard this story a million times. Oh, you put a plus after something. We've heard that story before. But but you know, stuck to it, trusted it, and. The results have you know, spoken for themselves, and and that that's what's really impressive about him is aside from the fact that he's come from you know a background that wasn't just growing up in baseball in you know South Florida or wherever or California or whatever it may be. Like this is a guy that you know, was an immigrant, uh, so to to not only just find the love of baseball, but then to take it to where he's taken it was just so fascinating to just kind of get to know him as a person more than you know the the guy who I've read so much stuff from over the last you know decade plus couldn't agree with you more but now it's our turn to rank the top five dhs for the 2024 mlb season we got it all on justbaseball.com. we already gave you the top five utility players on wednesday's episode now it's time for arm and i to tackle the dhs of course we have our two honorable mentions and if you're listening to this the article is out now on justbaseball.com, you can follow along. You can read the analysis, right? But I like to use this time to argue. On the last episode, I said people that rank Jeff McNeil as the number one utility guy probably think that eggs are spicy and that Wonder Bread toast with butter is a great meal. Me, on the other hand, I don't. And it's fun to just get into a back and forth. With the DHs, it's a little bit harder because it's kind of set in stone. But Arm and I will do our best. So let's start with the two honorable mentions. We got Aloy Jimenez from the Chicago White Sox and Jorge Soler, who is currently a free agent. Both big power bats. Eloy, we know if he played a full season, he'd probably be at 40 home runs. However, we've said that for several years now. Yeah, we've said that for several years now. Jorge Soler, on the other hand, 36 jacks. But that's how good the top five DHs is. So do you want to handle the odds and I'll handle the evens? Uh yeah. I will so well first of all, with, with Solaire, this is a guy that just like confuses me. I want to just like discuss him very quickly because go ahead. He's better when he's DHing, but he was forced to play the outfield more than he should. He has a back issue, like and it's weird. Like I, I almost in the DH role, it's like you you don't get any reward for playing more outfield, you know, because we don't care. We're ranking DHs. It's all about the bat. So I don't know. Where are you at on a Solaire? Because there's a reason why he's not signed right now. And there's a reason why the Marlins didn't give him a qualifying offer. Like he is he's a weird case, considering that he's had years where he is one of the best power bats in the sport. He's had years where he's brutal. And now we got a couple years in between. Like, do you think he's just settling in between now? I think he's settling in between. I also don't know what the market is for a 31-year-old DH. Yeah. Right? I think that's just, I think that's what teams are trying to figure out, right? Because he's not a model of health. He's not a model of consistency either. 
But when you see him put it together, he's one of the best power hitters in Major League Baseball, point yeah. blank, period. Yeah. So I think it's just, do we want to lock into this guy for three years? And 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 weather the storm, like yeah, it could. And, and the answer is no. Like the answer is I don't want to sign up for that for multiple years because I don't, I don't feel confident that it's going to continuously be good. It might be one really good year, and then there's another year where he's killing us, right? Like my DH that I'm paying 15, 20 million is killing me. So I'm with you on that. And I think that's why he's going to end up getting maybe a, a one or two year deal, and you know maybe with with opt outs. And I'm not saying that this guy is a perfect comparison, but we just saw a guy like Teoscar Hernandez sign a one-year $23 million with eight and a half million of it deferred, right? Because yep. the Dodgers just defer it just to shove it at our faces, Yeah. right? So is that a type contract that a player like Jorge Soler will get this offseason? I think less. I think he'll probably get less because at he least Teoscar can play some defense. Yeah, I know he doesn't, but um, you want to jump into it though? So you want me to take number five? Yeah, I guess just on Aloy real quick, right? He's coming off a year where he played the most amount of, amount of games, most amount of plate appearances since his rookie season in 2019. 120 games, though, right? 489 plate appearances. That's his most since his rookie year in 2019. We know the talent. 118 career, WRC plus, 811 OPS, plenty of bombs. Just not staying healthy, right? If he was playing 160, if you told me that next year, yeah, I'm having him on my top five. The thing is, we've just never seen that. That's that's a thing. And it's a projection, you know, we're, we're ranking for 2024. So it's, it's you know, if I have to pick somebody who I think is going to have a better year for next year, yes, Eloy could have a much better season than number five, J.D. Martinez. I think there's a lot of scenarios where his his ceiling is is higher. But if we if you run 100 simulations or 1,000 simulations, I think there's going to be more where J.D. Martinez is just giving you more production because we've seen it and we've seen it you know consistently. And I think J.D. having that down year two years ago and then bouncing back the way that he did this past season is what really solidified him at number five. Uh, you know, and I had him at number four. And reminder for those that may not have heard the last episode, it's it's aggregated across our, our staff. So, you know, we. We each gave our individual rankings and then it averaged out and I had him at four. You were a little bit lower on JD. So I'm interested to kind of hear your perspective on it, but four was the most common ranking. Jack had him at four. I had him at four. Fink had him at four. Leo did not even have him ranked and Colby had him at five. You had him at seven. Um, I understand it because he's 36 and two years ago was rough. But last year was was really solid. 271, 321, 572 slash line, 33 bombs, 103 driven in, a 135 WRC plus. The guy's just kind of hit his whole career, except for a couple years ago. And I just feel like he's going to keep doing it. Yeah, I, I think when I was ranking these DHs, while I ranked him seven, and that might seem kind of glaring, right? You have him outside your top five. You think it should be an honorable mention. I think a lot of these guys are fairly similar. And the reason I rank JD a little bit lower is I think a lot of the bats that we have have arguably more upside. I would say JD has a higher floor just because when he goes to the ballpark every day, the guy just hits and he's proven that for a really long time. I'm just wondering what an age 36, 37 season for him looks like, right? Are we going to see 30 plus home runs again? Are we going to see a 135 WRC plus again? Right. I'm not trying to bet against JD Martinez. That's why when I ranked him at seven, it was more he was in a cluster and the age thing kind of just took me a little bit out of him. And the fact that right now, right. What kind of contract is he going to get? What do you pay 
J.D. Martinez, right? And I was thinking, well, Jorge Soler is probably going to get a bigger contract. If Aloy was on the open market, he'd probably get a bigger contract. That's why I ranked him just a little bit lower. But at the same time, they're all kind of in that cluster. Yeah. I'm not willing to just jump on. And like, there's more guys who I want to argue about later. If you told me J.D. Martinez should be five, sure. That's why yeah. I never had a complaint about it. Yeah, and like also like, I think those other guys get a larger contract because they're younger. If they're all getting a one-year deal, I'd, I'd give JD more than I'd give Solaire in a one-year deal going into next year. Uh, Eloy would be interesting. It'd be like, how risk, how risky do you want to get? How risk-tolerant are you? I'd probably, I could lean towards the upside of Eloy building off of a, of a year where, you know, he played 120 games, as you mentioned. Like, okay, if he does it again, you know, I think he could put up a better offensive season. But with my DH, I'm so paranoid of them. If you don't hit, like you're actually useless. So I feel very confident that JD's going to at least hit pretty well. And that's more than fair. I personally think I might have ranked him too low. I think I might have ranked him too low because he is safe, right? At the same time, he's getting older. He saw his hard hit rate up 13.4%, 98th percentile in barrel rate, hard hit rate, average exit velocity. Still hitting the piss out of the ball. I think I ranked him too low. First mistake by me ever. Ever. To all of us. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> now you're you're one million for one million and one. Yeah, no, I've I've much more than one mistake if you didn't sense the sarcasm for anybody listening. Number four on the top five DHs list, Marcelo Zuna of the Atlanta Braves. I mean, what do you want me to say? The guy raked last year. 40 bombs. 100 driven in, a 139 WRC+. plus. I ranked him here at four. Arm, you were a little bit lower on him. Yeah. I think, like, I mean. I, he broke my I, brain, I'll be honest with you. It was yeah, it was really tough. I mean, I, mean, I like, I don't personally want to praise the guy a ton. We know what his pass yeah. is off the field. Um, you can say whatever you want about it. We don't really talk about that kind of stuff here on the Just Baseball Show. The year was objectively great. Why'd you rank him a little bit lower? I, so, we, you know, we talked about it. It's like we also factor in the the year before. And mm-hmm. that's why I understand your JD ranking because, you know, the year before was not good. But, of course, you're going to weight the most recent year heavier. Like it's going to ma- it's going to matter more. But if you have a putrid two years ago and then an unbelievable last year, it, it just kind of broke my brain and. The thing with him, though, also 2021 was injury riddled. He didn't look great. And I just I wonder what his chances are of doing this again at 33. Maybe they're high. Maybe he'll be really good again. I mean, 40 home runs is unbelievable. He's hitting the living crap out of the ball. It's pretty hard to argue against what he did. And I think he's one of those guys as well where you could kind of make a case that he could go, you know, higher or or even a little bit lower. But what, what I like about him as a as a hitter is that he clearly made some adjustments. He clearly found something and just rolled with it. The thing is, he's just always been so volatile and and, and that volatility is is tough. Um, but there's another one where like if, if we sit long enough, you could probably talk me into bumping him up. But I just if again going into next year, I just feel a lot safer with the guy that we have ranked ahead of him. But damn man, a 139 WRC plus so it's 558. I also think that it, it's just bizarre that he had the best year of his career at 32 and offensively is at least. And I just, I don't know if he repeats it. I just, I'm not sure. 
Yeah, no, I, it was funny when I was ranking these guys, like they're all kind of in this similar cluster. They're all 30 plus. Some of them are coming off great years. Some of them, you know, were a little bit injured, like Solaire, 36 bombs. Marcelo Zuna, 40 bombs. J.D. Martinez, 33, but they're all a little bit older and they haven't repeated this a ton of times in a row. So that's why I felt like this was in a cluster, right? Yeah. If you told me you like J.D. over Marcelo Zuna, I'd be like, all right. If I told you I like Marcelo Zuna over JD, I think you have the same reaction. Yeah, correct. I mean, I mean, dude, there was a we have a 172 game sample of 2021 and 2022 where the dude hit 222, 278, 397. There were conversations had about swapping bad deals for Marcelo Zuna and obviously El Garcia. Like that was a a conversation had. Like maybe we should just exchange bad contracts here and get change of scenery. Um. I'm sure the Marlins are kicking themselves for not picking that one up. If if, if I think the Marlins yeah. are kicking themselves for a lot. Yes. But <laughs> at the same time, there was the, the optic side of it. So, but just from a baseball standpoint, I mean, he was one of the worst hitters, you know, because he's not giving you any defensive value there. Like he was a negative war guy. He was an 85 WRC plus over a span of nearly 200 games. So yes, 144 games most recently were unbelievable. And, and I'm going to weight that a little bit more or or even a decent bit more. That's why he's number four. That's why he's ahead of J.D. Martinez, who's been really good for, for pretty much a larger span of time. And even his down year was not as bad as Ozuna's you know down years over the last couple of years before you know 2023. So he was probably the most difficult player for me to, to rank, though, because I do feel like there's so much effort in that swing. One little twinge or injury again, I, I could just see him kind of getting in a rut uh, and he just seems to be so streaky. I just think it's so funny that he hit 40 home runs this season, put up this 900 OPS, but in the first month of the season, he had 091, 206, 218 with a 28.5% strikeout rate. It's- and then post all-star break hit over 300 with an OPS over a thousand while slugging nearly 650. It's just went on a tear. It's insane. And I will say too, though, it's, it's less about Ozuna and more about like who is ahead, you know, because like it, it became just too hard to, to push the top three, anyone in the top three outside of the top three. And, and that's kind of what leads us into number three. Exactly. Like, that's why I think like four to seven, we all had the same players except for Leo. <laughs> yeah. We all had the same players. It was just kind of like, who do you believe in? Yeah. And the way I ranked it, I was like, well, JD, at some point, it just has to stop, right? Everyone has been showing the same type of power, right? Jorge Soler, Eloy, at least in a limited amount of time, but he is younger. Then Marcelo Zuna is coming off the best season of all of them. And I was kind of like, you know what? I guess I'll rank the old guy last, even though he might be the safest. But that brings us into number three and the definitive top. Yeah, three the, the clean sweep number three, Kyle Schwarber. Three's a, number three across the board. And just I think the focus here is what separates Kyle Schwarber from Marcelo Ozuna. And, and for me, it's like I think that they're you know, Ozuna is going to be a little bit better bat to ball. Obviously, he's going to hit for more average. He's going to give you more doubles and mix other things in. But all my DH is to mash. And and Schwarber now three straight seasons of well above average, you know, offense. You know, when we just look at WRC plus 2021, a 145 WRC plus 2022, a 129 WRC plus. And last year, by pretty much every measure, aside from the total of home runs, was a down year for Schwarber. Yeah, it was like he was a little bit frustrated and, and was probably off of his game a little bit. And he hits 47. 
uh, some of these other guys being off their game a little bit, they're, they're not able to still, you know, mix in those home runs and leave the yard and draw the walks like like Schwarber does. And that's the thing is Schwarber, even when he's slumping, he's still going to hit you two home runs in a week and he's still going to get on base at a 350 clip or a 340 clip. Uh, maybe when he's slumping, it's 300. I don't care. Like that when he's playing poorly, he's still getting on base three out of 10 times and leaving the yard a couple times a week. And that's what really stands out to me about Schwarber. You got 93 home runs over the last two seasons, which is absolutely outrageous. He's been, and I know it's DH and and he's actually had to play more outfield than he deserves. Uh, That also factored into it for me. Like this guy had to play 103 games in the outfield. Now this coming season, the goal is for him to play no games in the outfield. And I think those games in the outfield probably affected him at the plate a little bit. His legs used to maybe being a little bit more jello under him, not being as powerful. And that may have impacted, you know, just the consistency offensively. So for him to still do what he did while getting thrown into a situation that he you know, hasn't been in in a couple of years. And now I know going into 2024, he's going to be in the field way less. I only think that's going to be better for him offensively. And when you look at it through that lens, again, we're always projecting here for 2024. I just think it's it's way more likely that he's going to be a better hitter than Marcelo Zuna in 2024. Also considering he's several years younger uh, and all that good stuff as well. But I also just liked what I saw from him down the stretch. I thought he looked a lot more comfortable and I think he's going to be a massive year for him in, in 24. And you mentioned all the regular season stuff. And I mean, he is just a power wind turbine when it comes to the regular season in terms of just smacking balls over the right field fence. But I love Kyle Schwarber because when the lights turn on, Kyle Schwarber is there. You're talking about a postseason OPS. He's played 65 games in the postseason, 259 plate appearances, a 931 OPS. He has 20 home runs in his postseason career in those 65 games. Kyle Schwarber has now passed Reggie Jackson for the most home Hmm. runs by a left-handed hitter in baseball history. At 19, he passed Reggie Jackson. Now he's got 20. So you get all of the regular season success. You get the 40 bombs a year. But then when the lights are on, you can rely on Kyle Schwarber putting your team up one with a leadoff bomb yeah. because I think it's hilarious that he hits leadoff. Yeah, which is also he had a lot of responsibility. And and the other thing that, that stood out to me was second half, man, he just, it, it clicked for him. 98 WRC plus in the first half, 144 WRC plus in the second half. So it just really got going for him, spilled into the playoffs. And I think he's going to carry that momentum and have a massive year uh, in 2024. And at number two, Jordan Alvarez is our second ranked DH on this list. You know, I was just watching Oppenheimer Arum. Yeah. And at the intro, they say, you know, Prometheus brought fire to the world and then was tortured for eternity. Jordan Alvarez has brought the fire to Major League Baseball. Yeah. This man is what? The second best hitter in Major League Baseball? The third, whatever, maybe the first. He wasn't even really healthy all season long. So the power was less for Jordan Alvarez's standards at 31 home runs. Yeah, he only slugged 583. A 170 WRC plus. And I just think it's amazing he's putting up a 4.5 F4 as a DH and bad outfielder. Like he is a special, special bat. Yeah. 
and we're going to get to number one, and I think everybody knows who number one is. Where do you rank him in terms of best hitters in baseball? It's, because I think it's like you're splitting hairs. Like, is he better than Judge? Is he better than Otani? Is he better than Acuna? Is he better than Mookie or Freddie? He might be. I don't know. As, They're as all the best just, at of the best. As just a hitter, like you could make the case that he's right there with, with, with anybody, right? And that's why it's so weird to rank him number two, you know, yeah. in the DA spot. But again, you you know, you're you're gonna know who number one is, and and actually had a better WRC plus than him, maybe the only person who did. Crazy. Uh, but I, I I would say it depends on on how you want to define what makes a hitter better or worse because like there's so many different ways to get to that 170 wrc plus right we're looking at a, a ronald acuna who hit 337 and gets to that you know 170 wrc plus and it's, it's so many different things across the board His 73 stolen bases also you know underratedly contribute to that too but then you look at what you get from somebody like Jordan. it's like you're gonna get similarly hitting for average hitting for power driving in runs he's we know he's one of the most clutch hitters on the planet I almost put those guys in like one bucket together. Like Freeman and, and Jordan are so similar, but Jordan absolutely demolishes baseballs, probably gives you a little bit more power. But then Freeman still somehow backs into a 567 slug because he hits more doubles than anybody and, and mixes in enough home runs. So it, it's really hard for me, but I would say you, you put him up there with just about anybody and and in and, and terms of just hitting and you, you got a strong argument. I still think that a healthy judge is is kind of on his own level at this point. We've seen this over the last year and a half now where I just think he can do things at a pace that just nobody can really do. But in terms of like complete hitter, I'd put Jordan up there with, with anyone. Do you think Jordan can win the MVP this season? Yeah. Just point blank. I was going to give yeah, you Yeah, I do. I do. Just- I do. I think he can because look, he's – the fact that he's even – the fact that he even plays some outfield is interesting. I don't know what their plan is going to be with him. It's going to be really hard to win it as a DH. Um, so I don't I don't know how much outfield he's going to play, how much he's going to DH. But I mean, the dude put up a 185 WRC plus in 2022 and a 170 this past year. Like if Judge is worse. banged up, I I think I think he can he can do it. How do you how do you not win it with like a 190 if he does that this this year? I mean, he was he was a seven win player in, in 135 games in 2022. So imagine he plays 20 more games. And he only played 114 games in, in 2023, and he was a four and a half win player. If we can get 150 games of Jordan playing at this level, he's probably an eight win player, seven and a half win player, just almost off the back of his offense alone. How is that not an MVP? It would take somebody else just playing out of their mind. Right? So I think he very easily could win it. It's incredible. Now I was just looking at the MVP odds on BetMGM, and I noticed that he was a little bit low. And I was like, I can definitely picture Jordan Alvarez with a 300, 400, 500 slash line with 45 bombs, 130 driven in and an eight F four. And how does that not that's win? like not crazy. No. And the only way that doesn't win is if judge judges like the way rod has, yeah, J-Rod J-Rod goes, has- you know, the same thing or because Otani is now gone, which kind of brings us into number one. Yes. Which I mean, how are you gonna how are you gonna rank anybody? And look, the pitching is irrelevant to this too, by the way. We're just talking about the hitter in a vacuum. And the hitter in a vacuum, you know, just Shohei Otani, the designated hitter that we're gonna get in 2024, just from what we've we've seen, he just keeps getting better and better and better. And and now 
I'm I'm very fascinated by what Shohei Otani only worrying about hitting is going to look like. Of course, he's going to be rehabbing and and getting himself you know good to go, and it'll be a focus for him. But not preparing for a start every fifth day, not also hitting while you you pitch every every fifth day. I I wonder how maybe maybe it's almost analysis paralysis and it'll be counterproductive. But I'd be willing to bet that knowing Shohei Otani and the way that he goes about his business, it's only going to help him. Uh, and I think he's only going to be more dangerous and more consistent offensively. And look, the guy hit 304, 412, 654 last year. And I think what stands out the most about this past season and that really separates him as the number one guy is he showed that he can slug with Jordan. If anything, he right, right now he's shown that he can outslug Jordan. And Crazy. now. He's showing that he can hit for average as well. Because Jordan, that was kind of the edge he always had, right? Oh, you're guaranteed high high 200s, low 300s batting average. Well, Otani's whiff rates, you know, would usually imply that he's not going to be able to fort with 300. But he hits the ball hard and hits so many pitches high in the zone that no one can usually get to that he hit 304 last year, dude. Like, he walked at a 15% clip. So, career high walk rate, career low strikeout rate, hits over 300. Over on base percentage over 400 for the first time. And he had 44 bombs. If he hadn't gone down with the, with the elbow issue, he probably flirts with, with 50, 55 homers. So I think it's just a no brainer. What he figured out offensively last year to, to be able to limit the whiff a little bit. Now too, we already knew he could slug with the best of them. Now he's a complete hitter and that's scary as hell. That is terrifying. And you forgot the biggest point about he's what fast. makes Joe Otani great is he's fast. 20 steals. It's amazing. He's got the triples. Yep. He's got the stolen bases. He's also fast. Eight triples. Eight triples. Eight of them. That is that is a factor. I mean, like if we're talking about hitters who are identical, yeah. and, and I think Joe still has the edge a little bit, but let's say they were identical. That's going to be a separator, right? He steals 20 bags and he's, he's going to be more effective and more valuable on the base paths. We're not talking about defense, but DHs have to run the bases. I just think it's amazing that he steals 20 bases. I'm going to just keep talking about it over and over again, because when I look right, when we go to the stolen base leaderboards, he finished in the top 25 of stolen bases. He had as many stolen bases as guys like Luis Robert Jr. Right. Luis Robert is his five tool player and he's incredibly fast and, Right, like Stephen Kwan, George Springer, Cody Bellinger, right? All these guys, Randy Rosarina at 22. I wonder if he steals more. I wonder if he steals more now that he's not pitching, too. Like, I, I'm, what if he goes 50 40? Well, <laughs> and he's the best. Yeah, I mean, then it's just, it's insane. But what do you eat? 30 bags. Like, maybe he goes for 30. Because I, I don't know. I would love to see the numbers of how often he stole bases when he was pitching. I'd imagine they didn't want him doing that. Like it's just exhausting and you're diving and whatever. Now that he's not pitching, I wonder if he tries to sprinkle in more, more stolen bases. And with the new rules, he was more, more efficient than he had been in the last two years in the stolen base department. So I wonder if he's a little bit more aggressive. If he steals 30 bags, if he goes 40, 30, he can go 50, 30 realistically in that lineup. I mean, that's the best designated hitter in baseball. I'm sorry, especially if he's sitting in the high 200s, low 300s, and getting on base at a 400 clip. Uh, it's going to be hard to match that, even if you're Jordan Alvarez. And I also think it's important to note, like, yes, he had the elbow issue, but.
but he's been more available the last three years as a as a hitter, especially right. Like as 158 games in 21, 100, 157 games in 22, and 135 last year. Probably could have played through it like Bryce Harper, but he just wanted to get the elbow taken care of because the Angels had nothing to play for. So I mean, he's really just been much more available, which which matters. And he's I think going to be very available for them, you know, as a bat this year, uh, especially not having to to throw. I just think it's amazing because, you know, some people, I, I assume I can already hear them are saying, oh, we think Jordan is a better hitter. Sure. Right. Sure. Which is fine. You could say that. But at the same time, Shohei is fast, which I joke, but does matter. And he had a 180 WRC plus to Jordan's 170 last year. It's in amazing more what he can do in more games. He's been more healthy than a guy like Jordan Alvarez, which is insane, Aram. We are making a argument that Shohei Otani is the best hitter in Major League Baseball. Yeah. That's what yeah. we're doing here. Mm-hmm. And then on top of it, he pitches. Yep. And runs. And runs. It's, we could just keep glazing the guy, but it's just so utterly amazing. We have yeah. never seen an athlete like this in professional sports in the last, what, ever? Ever. So it makes it. Unbelievably fun. It makes it lame to rank him as a DH, but I'm kind of glad we get to because he would just kind of be his own like two way player rank. Um, we'd be ranking him DH and then ranking him as a pitcher, uh, which I'm looking forward to doing that later on. But uh, you know, next year I guess. But yeah, man, it's it's going to be fun in a different way to to just see him focus on one thing and see how how ridiculously good he can be at that one thing uh, before it's back to doing both again. I think we kind of figured out our top three hitters in Major League Baseball. Otani, Judge, and Jordan. And then I think the number four conversation is probably between Freddie Freeman, Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna Jr. Maybe you could still throw Mookie in there. I don't know. I think Mookie's like like 1B at this point. On the outside looking in. I think it would be between those three again for that number four spot and then having the argument surrounding them. You'll hear it later on the Just Baseball show when we continue our top tens. We got pitchers, we got relievers, we got outfielders, we got everything that you need coming up here on the Just Baseball Show. Hopefully everybody enjoys their weekend. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, leaving a five-star review. And if you'd be so kind as to leave a written review about what you were enjoying, really, we've been seeing those written reviews come in. We really, really appreciate them. Guys, no, it, it truly helps out our show. And... If you want to subscribe on YouTube, hit that big red subscribe button. It's free. Tons of short form content and all of the podcasts you can watch on YouTube. So hit that subscribe button. And of course, all of this is brought to you by BetMGM and get your Just Baseball merch in the episode description. That's Arm Layton. I'm Peter Apple, and we will see you next week. And with that, thank you. Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio.